Spud, thanks for coming in. You took a long time off work at the start of 2014, off TV, off radio. Why was that? I had a nervous breakdown. Um, it was amazing. I did a game for Triple M. I was losing a lot of sleep, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of issues, and, and unbeknownst to me at that stage, a lot of deep seated ones. But the the ones that the the tipping point for me was working the AFL Coach Association, and being this other character in the media, very happy, go lucky, um, throw people under the bus, throw myself under the bus, and the exterior of that versus working in the association at that stage, the Essendon scenario. No one was prepared for it, no more than me, because I was put in the association as more a marketing-type person. You know, looking back, the, the word CEO be, beside my name, not, not quite laughable, but you don't, you don't look at Danny Ford as a CEO. So when the Essendon thing came front and square, it put everyone on notice, no more than me, because I was dealing behind the scenes with a lot of Essendon coaches who were really struggling and, and got a lot of information that was confidential. And yet on the weekend, I had to take one hat off and, and put another one on. And uh, it was amazing. I just started losing some sleep and the, the old farm boy come at me, the hardier, the tighter you are, the more you work. So I started running a lot and I started drinking a lot and then I started doing, you know, weight sessions and I still couldn't sleep. So this base of three weeks um, without sleeping, something had to give. I was waiting to get the cold or the flu or run down, but I was just on this treadmill of just keep going, you'll be right, work through it, as, as my late father used to say, you know, just, you'll be right, son. And you've never spoken really about this no, publicly? I no, I haven't. And I think it's, I'm, I'm, I'm over it now, and that's why I'm sort of, I, I want to help people, but I, I just want to sort of put it out there that that's what happened. And a lot of people are saying, what did happen? So you had a nervous, you said nervous breakdown, and it led, I mean, in the end, depression is yep. the symptom and the outcome and the the mental well, health issue that you ended up with. Well, I was at the MCG, did a game, and uh, it was amazing. I had to call Anita up, and I was sitting in the car park. There was no one else there for an hour and a half, and I had to call her to work out how to get home from the MCG, which was, I'd done that for 30 years. What, were you, what you didn't know how to get there? Didn't know you, how to get home. What, just a foggy Just done. Haze. My brain was, the only thing I could think of was ringing Anita, saying, I just... I'm confused. I got home and I took the, she goes, just take the walk, dogs for a walk. One of my dogs, um, and this was on dusk, um, late, late April, and got back and thought I lost one of the dogs and just basically sat down and I can say it now, just cried for, for, for two hours. I just thought this, this is not happening to me. What's going on? I, and it was always, I'll wake up in the morning, it'll be okay. And work it off because that's what happened when you're a competitor. You just you don't want to let people know you're, you're hurting, and no more than my family. But Anita, you know, she was the one that um, could see it, what was happening. And I was angry at home. I was, you know, as I said, I didn't sleep for three weeks, which is quite silly when you think about it. You know, after the first couple of nights, I should have been a bit more honest and, and forthright about it. Went to the doctor, did a did a basic. Um, sort of scenario where he asked me a few questions. This is just my general doctor who I'd seen and all my girls just basically put me through a, um, a few questions and and said, um, you've got a bit of depression. And again, I was in denial. And he said, look, here's a few temazepam. Go home and, you know, you'll sleep well. I thought, oh, that's good. Yep, good. Um, 
had had the temazepam and and slept for basically 10 seconds and then woke up i thought gee this is interesting so i rang him up again and he put me onto a psychiatrist who i was lucky enough that he had a he had a three-month waiting list this guy and happened to have a um, a, a cancellation went in there and that's when i sat down and told him what was going on and he looked at me with anita sitting next to me and he said you've had a nervous breakdown and i didn't know what that was I just thought that was for people who had a bit of a weakness that um, had a bit of a, a brain malfunction, that they're, they're not, not mentally strong or they're a bit mentally weak. Because that's, you know, so that was a stoic farmer that had to head up, shoulders back, and no, no matter if your arm's chopped off, just put the sleeve on and just keep working through it. And that's the way I was, I was treating this still at that stage. And I was, I was in a bit of shock when he told me that. And I don't mind saying it now, but he gave me a Stillnox, which is you've got to get that prescription through psychiatrists. Um, I had that and I slept for about an hour. And I rang up the next morning and I said, mate, I just need to sleep. I am, I'm going off my head. I, ju- I was so tired, but I was so, my mind was just flying. So then he gave me, you know, I don't mind saying it now, you know, give me two. And he said, look, that will put an elephant to sleep. And that, that basically put me to sleep for about two and a half to three hours. And that went on for about three or four weeks. And I had to see him nearly every day, every day for, um, I don't know, it would have been two or three weeks. And then eventually called him one night and said, no, I need need to go somewhere. I I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And that stage, all I wanted to do was get out of bed um, and walk around the corner and and walk under a truck. That was what I was thinking about. That's how bad your thoughts were. I was done. Just and, and at, the, at this point in time, the catalyst was from the stress of work, or do you think it's completely unrelated to that? Well, it was. Um, I, I thought that the tipping point was I was I was in a position that I didn't have the skill set dealing with the Essendon scenario, so it wasn't their fault. I didn't blame them. I did at the time. So you're overwhelmed at work. Yeah, I was overwhelmed, and I was over. I was under um, qualified and qualified. Spot on. Um, but again, I didn't want to let people know that. And I thought, yeah, I've got to get through this Essence scenario and then I'll resign and then I'll go into the media full time. So then there was a review of the AFLCA, uh, and rightly so, because we were losing a little bit of money and the AFL were well, well aware of that. And then a couple of the coaches wanted an independent review. So again, I felt a little bit precious because there was a board and staff who were looking at me for leadership. But... And I, in the back of my mind, I, as soon as I resigned from the AFLCA, everything will be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I resigned about a week and a half after seeing the psychiatrist and didn't sleep a wink because I thought, oh, gee, that's that's a load off my mind. No. Nah. And then, you know, what, what the psychiatrist basically told me, he said, look, don't make rash decisions. He didn't realise I was going to do that because I just thought, oh, that's the thing I need to get off my chest. Um, and... So then he said, look, after the, the nervous breakdown, you've got major slash clinical depression. And um, I started reading books on that. I thought, that's, nah, that's that's not me. So, I, you know, I was working with, obviously, Triple M and Fox Footy. And we had a, a two-week scenario just to write a letter to them. Look, Danny's got some personal issues. Um, and rightly so, they just treated it as that. And, and that's why I'm I'm pretty sort of um, upset with people when they start talking about these when people are struggling. You've got to be very careful because every, every, everyone's different. 
And I thought, oh, yeah, two weeks, that'll be good. I'll stay off Triple M and, you know, and um, it was quite interesting. Um, the thing that really knocked me, because as I said, I was having some really dark thoughts, that JB and all the right reasons on Triple M, you know, the, the genre we, we took in those days, they had a couple of fill-ins and they took a photo and sent it to me with black armbands on. Spud sick. They were trying to do the right thing, but I looked at that and that just put me in another tailspin because they didn't understand and I didn't want to tell, let them know because I thought, oh, in two weeks' time, I'll be fine. But um, two years later, I was still struggling. But it took me it took me uh, 18 months to actually come to the realisation it wasn't what was happening yesterday. It was happening from basically the age of seven or eight. And, and what have you established was the cause or the catalyst? I mean, so um, it, it, the catalyst for it all coming out was the role at the AFLCA. But what do you think had happened? What did what was the backlog? The backlog started from a very young age. Um, being a farmer, being told to toughen up. The and if something happened, you you know, if you had a big night and a drink on the farm, Dad would get me up two hours earlier. Work it off, son. You know, don't be moping around here. So that was the. And and for all the right reasons, farmers are, are very, they're not, and I was, as you know, not an introvert, but farmers work on their own. So they've just got to get the job done. Unbeknownst to me, they just turned me into this unbelievable competitor. It didn't matter what it was, um, I just wanted to win. And and as you know, that can't happen all the time. So if, you, if your DNA is to be this um, 10 foot tall bulletproof person that is a competitor, the only way they're happy is when they win. That, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you come second, third, because you just want to win. And and for all the right reasons, I had to get off the farm because I didn't really like the farm life. And for the first two years, I tried to get a game at St Kilda, but I was still having a drink with my farmer mates on a Thursday, Friday night. And then I thought, shit, third time lucky, I better have a crack. So I went off the drink, um, trained every night, ran with my brother who was a professional athlete and got a job playing for St Kilda, and I thought, this is the way out for me off the farm. And I liked the farm, but I didn't love it. So, again, but the, the reason I got off the farm was because I was a competitor. I had to go outside the, the realms of all my mates living in a little country town of Bungaree, and they had a crack at me um, at the time for not going down to the pub having a couple. But I had this thing, shit, the only way I'm going to off the farm, I think I've got the talent, um, not the skill, but something inside me to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be good enough to play league footy. And, you know, I was lucky enough to do a pre-season at Geelong in 83, 84. And then the last minute St Kilda came to me because that was their zone. That's another story. So the whole thing about was... So to answer your question in a short version, the, the deep-seated issue was I was a competitor and the only person I was competing against was myself because I was never happy. And you felt that you'd failed yourself and... In everything. Other than my family. That was the thing that got me through. My three daughters... But I felt I failed them and my wife because the last – and it started when I left Richmond. Uh, sorry, when I left St Kilda. And I look at it now, I've, I'm so proud of what I've done. But there was always, gee, um, if I had of – but you only know what you know at any given time. So I was captain for nine years. But the issue I had because of my um, competitive nature, I would be the best party boy. And, that, and all clubs did it in those days. But the next morning, I was the best trainer. And I look back, and there's probably some young kids who I 
would take under my wing and have a couple of beers with. But the next day they're down the back, but I'm up the front and they're looking at me saying, gee, what? How does that happen? So, and I used to beat myself up over that, but I only knew what I knew. And I was captain for nine years, so I look at that as fond memories. We we played finals for the first time in nine years. But then we played Geelong, oh, we're third, the winner gets a double chance, the loser out. So all of a sudden there's a little chip on my shoulder. Gee, you know, if this had to happen, I could have been A, B and C. And I looked when I retired, all these guys with tattoos on there, just above their ankle. I thought, oh, I want one of those. And I didn't get it as a player. So the competitor in me said, oh, well, instead of going back to the farm, I'll go and apply my trade at, at coaching and my plan was to um, spend a couple of years at Collingwood and North Melbourne were after me as well. So I tipped Collingwood because my uh, uncle Des Tudden played for Collingwood. And I thought that'll be good. Sure, he's a young coach. It'll be good. Um, and was always to do two years and then go back and help the late Trevor Barker to coach because he was a really successful coach in Sandringham. And the age of 39, he died of bowel cancer, which again is a great story for people. You know, talk about a fitness fanatic, but he just thought he had ulcers for a couple of months and didn't read the signs. And that's that's one of the great um, injustices because he would have been a great coach. You, you t- talked to all the Sandy guys. So the plan was for, for me to go back and help Barks get a bit of IP from Collingwood. So he, for all the selfish reasons, died on me. But, um, and I say that flippantly, yeah. but then I thought, what do I do now? So I thought, oh, geez, I'm... I'm on a bit of an island now. Coach another two years. The Richmond job come up, and I thought, there it is. I'm, I'm ready to go. I'd, I'd coach my own team in the VFL at Collingwood. Collingwood were a great club. They gave me a great opportunity, and I was probably a 1,000 to 1 to get the job, um, and I interviewed quite well, and then it come down to two and, and beat a premiership VFL coach down to two, and I got that, and I thought, yep, this is, um, this is me. <coughs> trying to achieve what was a little bit of a black hole as a player. I'm going to coach a flag. And then a bit, a little bit of success early. And then quite amazingly, um, I was 36 when we coached um, Richmond to the prelim. So young. And I was out of the game at 41. Yet at the age of 54 now, I should be, you know, look at world sport, I should be coming back, I should be coaching now in my prime or just getting into it. NFL, basketball, um, European soccer. We're, we're one of the few countries that don't um, respect wisdom and, and age. And I go, and a lot of my close mates are Sicilian, and they treat their grandfather like this ogre, this guy that's just so precious. And that's the thing that I got out of being ill, that wisdom does count for a lot. But I think um, where's society can, can really not, and, and the younger generation don't respect the elders much. And, I, and I'm wrapped for Ken Hinckley. And when I was association, I'm really proud of the fact that Hinckley got a job in my watch. Richardson, these guys are 52, 53, because the sexy thing was to give Voss and Hurd a game uh, of coaching, give them a crack at it. And, and they would readily say they were, they were just thrown to the wolves. They, their ego suggested they were going to do it, but they didn't have the skill set, a bit like me at the AFLCA. The leading journos around um, our game basically said Frawley will never coach senior footy again. And I'm thinking, God, I I was outstanding in those first two years and you need to know what happened. But I thought, no, I'll just sit on my hands and, and move on and don't blame and cast a portion because uh, I was I was a part of it. But I thought, how can that happen? How can... Cause I sp- and I rang Lee Matthews up straight away and I said, Lee, were you a better coach second time around? He said, yeah, Danny, I was. You know, I used to coach with a bloody... Kane at Collingwood and I coached with a feather duster at Brisbane. I thought, yep, that's good. That's going to be... So I was waiting for the phone to ring. 
and it never did. And and Lindsay Fox gave me a, um, a, a an olive branch to work in leadership at Linfox, and it was a great experience. And I I'm indebted to him because he he actually mentored me through that last nine games of coaching a team that I was no longer their coach going forward, but I was trying to get the best out of them. So I basically had to jump in the bay, and this is probably a bit of not showing people you're hurting. I jump in the bay was about eight degrees. 20 minutes before I went to Richmond because it's the only way I could sort of put on a brave face for the nine weeks to jump in the bay for 10 minutes and just get bitterly cold. Then I'd have a shower and I felt alive. So I'd go to Richmond and then on the way home, go back to the bay, jump in, have a steam and to make sure I was sort of happy for the girls. But I was as low as shark shit. But I didn't want to let anyone know that. If you feel like you need to talk to someone, call Lifeline now on 13 11 14. So, so the you'd been um, it had the role taken away from you, and then you didn't get another role. So you're feeling um, you know your confidence levels are at a low base. Did they remain at that low base, and then the role at the coaches' association tip you over there? Did you uh, build your confidence up at no, any stage? Well, what happened was. James Brayshaw and, and Gary, um, indebted to them, because Gary was working at Channel 9 and, and giving me a gig on the footy show So for the following year. So this is um, sort of October. I had that locked in. This is, But the first week in the finals, um, James Brayshaw gave me a call out of the blue. Do you want to do a couple of games of special comments? A week later, I've left Collingwood, uh, sorry, Richmond, and as I said, the going away party, I could have had it in a telephone box and there'd be still plenty of room. <laughs> and I I had to sell my house and that's fine. You, you know, people have pressures. People's, so I had a huge mortgage on this beautiful house we had. So I sold that and that didn't worry me because we bought a beautiful house around the corner. And I, so I go into Triple M and they didn't even have to open the door for me to walk in. I just slinked in under the door and I was pretty flat. All of a sudden, James Brayshaw, as, as he does, pumped me up as a St Kilda champion and a legend and coach Collingwood to the, sorry, Richmond to the prelim final. And, you know, and all of a sudden, I was not not a peacock, but I was on the way. Felt better about yeah, yourself. The shoulders come back, the chest come out. And, and all of a sudden, after two weeks, I thought, this media gig's going okay. And all of a sudden, my sense of humour was coming back. And at Richmond, early days, I had a great sense of humour, but that soon dried up after the losses because being a competitor, I, I started to blame everyone else. But the, the only person that, that should have been blamed was me with all the mistakes I made looking back. So all of a sudden, the Triple M ethos was to pump up everyone in the inner sanctum and give it to everyone else. Out of, in the outer sanctum, as you rightly know in those days, we, you know, it was, it was a form of bullying. I look back, it was great, but you know, we probably hurt a lot of people. And and looking back, you know, I was um, at that stage. I'm back to where I was, hmm. but there was always this black little hole um, of not being a premiership player, not being a premiership coach. And whilst externally I was very happy and you know working on the bounce and Triple M, but geez, didn't Danny up and about? But I'd go home and just be, be a bit flat. So for a, for a ten or twelve year period, um, I don't think I was great to live with at home, um, and I'd still. Because I had this now persona in the media. Oh, Danny's back again. So it was all about my ego. So when you're on Triple M and the bounce, it was all false. Well, it wasn't. You're having it, to put it on. I was the last couple of years. Not not early day. No, I wasn't. And what it did, it, it actually stroked my ego. 
because I was low as um, shark shit with not playing a flag, I also had now a lot of people recognising me and um, and it was just was all about what what I was, not who I am. Right. And that was the that was the thing that got really conflicted in my brain. That okay, these things didn't happen, but you're really good at that now. And then the AFLCA coach, and, and then I become conflicted. And that's the tipping point. But the big tipping point for me was to sit down and assess after 18 months of my depression. The the only way I got through it is to sit down and, and work out the root of the, the problem. You know, I, I look back in my playing career and um, I was disappointed, but I was the first pick for the state for nine years running, purely because they knew that the guy I was going to play and was going to get a pretty hard time. Because And that was my that was my one wood as a player. I wasn't skillful, but... I was a, a competitor, and mm. I didn't want to. I didn't want to get beat ever, and um, but that unfortunately did my head in, um, not not having the success. So when when the AFLCA thing tipped over, it was another. This, that was the thing. I was a little bit older. The Richmond thing was still underlying in there, and I thought, "Where's my life gone?" And the three the three weeks period, and and, and look, the coaches. I spoke to them in March in two thousand and fourteen. And they got 18 coaches there. And looking back, I broke down in front of them. So the signs were there well and early that I was I was struggling mentally. And I remember a couple of coaches called me, are you okay, the next day? And again, I said, yeah, I'm fine. But I was, I, was, I was done. I was done probably six months before I tipped over the edge. There's no doubting that whatsoever. I looked up the definition of depression. And it says it's feelings of severe despondency and dejection. Self-doubt creeps in and that swiftly turns to depression. Melancholy, misery, sadness, unhappiness, sorrow, woe, gloom, gloominess, dejection. Is that what you felt? Yeah, a glass half empty. Right. And that's why, you know, my beautiful wife Anita, I owe it to her because she, she said, no, no, when, when things are going well, you're, you're a great man, you're a great husband, but you've turned into a, a bitter, twisted person that just looks in the negatives of, of everyone. She said that to you? Yeah. And this was when I was at my down. You know, she she was hoping I'd get better, but when when she saw what happened, I think she'd. You know, I owe it to her because I, I I couldn't leave her side. For six is, is this after you were diagnosed yeah, with clinical depression? Yeah, she, and I was I was a tipping point at any stage for for three months, um, and and read into that what you like. But you know, I went. Well, you into, talked about really dark times. Well, I, went into a, I had to, as I said, as the psychiatrist and Anita, and I'll, I'll never forget the poor girl dropped me at the front. Into a, into a hospital that there's a need dropping off. Yeah, into a clinic in Melbourne that was um, for people who were, were were probably in a stage that they wanted to wanted to do away with it. Self harm. Yeah, and I went in there, and again, I couldn't wait to get out of the place. But I'm so thankful that I saw it, and I thought it, it doesn't pick or choose, and it doesn't discriminate, does it? No, and they and and all these guys knew me, and I walked around the town with a few of them, and. Gee, some of their stories, you know, a lot of them were farmers, again, you know, living on their own, the debt, the drought, and I'm thinking, gee. And they looking at me, they kept looking at me and saying, what? What, what, what have you got to be so disappointed about? And they were right. I, I kept trying to convince myself that I had everything, a beautiful young family, um, no debt, a great job. But again, it took me, it took me 18 months where I went away on a farm and I had a guy looking after me, and again, it was a farm where people were really struggling. And he said, "We're going to go for a walk." 
So I had my watch ready, had the clock, how long are we going for, what time? And and we, we just went for a walk through this beautiful park. And unbeknownst to me, um, every time we got on my shoulder, I just got two metres in front. And he'd start talking again, and we're just talking, and I got two metres in front. And Anita and the girls were telling me this for years. Why don't you just walk with us, Dad? Why do you have to walk? But it was, again, just being a competitor. Had to win the walk. Had to win. And the guy goes, mate, you're not... You're not smelling the roses. You're giving them windburn. Slow the f*** down. What is wrong with you? And I was just like a, a hurricane for the first week up there. And, he, and, it, and it broke. I had, to, I had to get broken down to actually work out that, that it was me, no one else. But it was just what evolved over a long period of time. The, the little black hole just got bigger and bigger. And then the chip on the shoulder come around. And then it was, woe is me. There was always someone, oh, why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? But... There's an old adage, and, and the thing that, that got me back, you know, I, I help, I like to help charities, but the Sacred Heart Mission on a Wednesday, I just go down there when I was battling and start coaching a lot of these guys that were living on the streets. It's the best thing I ever did. Gave you perspective. It gave me a huge perspective, and it gave me a um, an ability to to tell them that I was battling, but also tell them their stories and some of their stories. Wow, kids were thrown out at home when they're fifteen, you know. So. And and that and I thought that's that's actually what life's all about. So I've come to SEN for a reason because there's very few people in the media that have captained a club for as long as I have, have coached a club for a little bit of success and then saw the dark side of it and then been a football administrator and, and loves his sport, loves horse racing. And that's why SEN, to me, looked like a good brand for me to actually tell people I got a bit more to my genre than than being a funny bastard. And I am. And I keep telling guys, even like you, if you're not funny, don't try and be funny. But I can get people to laugh. But that, as long as it's humorous, but the laughing coming from a very young age, from some pats, the bullying scenario, was a part of humor. That was the stick. That was the stick of mm. coming through the farm. coming Like, I'm talking about a 16-year-old kid who is playing under 16s for two years, captaining the team, and then going to the seniors with a bit of talent. And guys belting the suitcase out of me because I got a kick. So that translated into my playing career because I thought most of the players I played on were too good for me. And it just resonated as a kid that I was a really good junior and then playing senior footy before my time. And these old strong farmers wanted to teach me a lesson, go near the ball today and I'll put your head 14 rows back. So again, you know, and I I take it back for the Bernie Quinlans and, and all those guys that, you know, but you get a right way with a bit more in those days. Do I feel embarrassed about it? A little bit, but I was just being a competitor and I was made to, you get away with a few more things in those days. There was, you know, I played on Gary Ablett for probably 15 times and the most goals he ever kicked on me was three because I knew what his weakness was and it was boxing. So I wanted him to um, use my head as a speedball because a competitor, you've got to find a weakness in the other competitor. And if you talk skill... Gary's um, marking, his agility, I, I had him for strength. Um, I knew he was a good boxer. So before the first bounce, I'd just give him one under the chops and all of a sudden his eyes would go back in his head and I knew he wanted to cave my head in. So I just put my head on his shoulder and he'd, he'd be swinging, but he couldn't hit me because I was in a wrestle and I could just feel all the juice coming out of him. You know, we got reported a few times with each other, but I look back on those with fond memories, but... I knew what his weakness was. Yeah. Um, 
Because if I just let him play footy, and I just, I would have the best seat in the house, but he would have kicked bags of goals on me. So um, you, you've got to find ways and means, and that's, that's, that's what you did. Tell me the symptoms of depression. When you, when you were at your lowest, you didn't leave the house? No. You didn't want to see people? I, we had a, we you live didn't in a, sleep? We li- no, I didn't sleep at all. No, for people out there, I, I didn't sleep, and I'd, I didn't sleep for three weeks. So I ran up and ran. It got to the stage where I was running 15K, going to work, then for the AFLCA, then going putting a footy jumper on, doing a, a challenge with the chief, then going back to work, putting a suit on, getting home, going to do some gym work, drink two bottles of red, and weigh asleep all night with this huge noise in my head. You'd lie awake all night? All night. No, how many hours would you get? Um, One? I'd lie, I'd lie. No, I never slept. At all? At all. For three weeks. And I've done tests on it, and no wonder my brain shut down. Because I, wait- I was waiting to get the flu or be run down. But my mind, the adrenal glands were just, the floodgates were open. I was on this treadmill of life. Literally, you'd lie and stare at the ceiling all night? All night. I was doing, adding meditation things, and that's why, you know, as I said, I had to, my brain got to a stage where I couldn't get home from the MCG. And I knew I was battling, but I thought, oh, no, it was just a lack of sleep. That's all it is. And eventually, you know, go to the doctor and get a couple of sleeping tablets. But mine was, my it was always going to happen to me. Looking back, it's just a matter of that was the tipping point. And and when it happened, oh, I blame bloody Essendon, I blame the media. Why couldn't I have a, a job like JB? Why can't I do this? Why aren't I still coaching senior footy? And it was woe is me. Right. But looking back, I seriously now, um, I'm very thankful to wake up, and and my life is. He's all around my girls. All three of them. All four. Nita, Chelsea, yep. Danielle, and, and Keely. And that's it. The rest, the rest is just a, a roadmap to get where you want to. And as I said, but in the past they were, they were there, but 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 I wasn't there. So that's all. Your focus was elsewhere. Yeah, yeah it was, and it took, as I said, it took an illness for me to get perspective on life and. As I said, I think, and a lot of people said, you know, and I, I spoke to, to Swato was a great um, support. My three doctors who I had, um, still had, I still see my psychiatrist. How I, often do you I see him up? about every six weeks now, and, and it's basically just a checklist um, to see how things are going. But the big thing that I've found, if something happens, if I lost my job in the media tomorrow, I wouldn't be worried. I'd be disappointed, but it doesn't define me. Um, my three girls do, and and it, so that's. Mm-hmm. And I've been, as I said, I'm sorry about getting a bit emotional. No, but, it's perfectly normal. Um, I'm going to get a tattoo, but I was, <laughs> I haven't had the balls to get a needle and the three girls on my leg because, because I didn't get one as a player or a coach. But it's just a, it's just a part of life that happened. It didn't, it didn't work, but. You know, and St Kilda, they get, they knew I was battling, and they they brought me back into their um, their womb, so to speak, because and that that helped my health no end because it gave me a bit of discipline, um, and it was back to somewhere something that I loved doing, coaching, and that and that probably with the media it was paying well, so to go back and work as a, an assistant coach, I was going to have to give away a bit of money. 
And I thought, no, no, this is going well. But I now coach the old Halebury girls team with two of my daughters and three a couple of times. It's the best thing I've ever done because I'm a bloody good coach. Um, and a lot of people can have a look at the win-loss record at Richmond and say, what's he talking about? No, I'm, I'm a very good coach. And I couldn't have said that two years ago. Um, would I ever go back in the AFL full-time? As I said, I'm, I'm Raptors and Kill to give me opportunity because it's something I loved, the club. It's brought back my passion for footy again because when I was in the depths of despair, I was going to go back on the farm. You know, I just need to get back and, and just be isolated. But I do love working with people. And, and coaching the old Halebury girls team was a first-up team and I've treated it like Richmond. And, and the girls love it. Um, it's been outstanding to see their improvement. We played a final, got beat, but that's irrelevant. It just got me back, you know, I, I do it for nothing, but they, I should actually pay them. Because I do, because I love coaching. If you feel like you need to talk to someone, call Lifeline now on 13 11 14. Are you more attentive now, more attentive as a husband and as a father than you've ever been? Yeah. I, I've still got a bad habit of interjecting when I'm passionate about something. And, and that's what I say to any young coach out there or anyone that's going into a leadership role. I've got good experiences because the end of 2001, I lost the proportion between my lips and my ears. I've, I didn't listen. And, and that's what I do now. I listen. And that's how you gain wisdom. You don't, you don't gain any more wisdom if you're talking 24-7. You, you've got that wisdom, but you're not going to get any more because hmm. all you're espousing is what you know. And the only way to learn is to listen. Listen and read. So I listen a lot now. And um, I, I, I love leadership. But the thing that I say to young coaches when they become a senior coach, don't forget the ability to listen. And I reckon Dim is a good example of that. He went through a period of fleeting success. You know, he's got Barmy in. And I'm sure, you know, he's the coach, but he listens a hell of a lot more. And he's in a happy place, and the players are happy, and the and the club's happy. But I think at times we just get when when your ego gets out of control, and you got love bites in the mirror, you're not going to listen. You're hearing, but you're not listening. And I reckon I was like that. The treatment now for you, you on any medication? Yeah, yeah I'm on antidepressants. Um, do I have to take them? Probably, probably not. Um, do I take them as a matter of just keeping things in tow yeah um it's probably like a smarty to me now but but yeah no i i do a bit of yoga i do meditation help? yeah i do it with anita um i'm in there with a lot of ladies they they, they giggle a bit i can't i can't touch my knees and alarm my toes but if someone had told me four years ago i was going to do yoga i said you've got to be joking and you'd be wanting to do it What's that? And, and if somebody had said you'd be wanting to do wanting it. Wanting to do it, yeah. yeah. And I thought, that's that, that can't be a spud farmer from Bungaree. And, you know, and that's that was part of the issue. My persona was a senior coach, a tough, gruff man who was a man's man. But deep down, I'm just a big, gentle puppy dog. On your, on your darkest days, what was it that you felt? Did you feel... Uh, a numbness? Did you feel? I mean, Schwatter, when we spoke, talked about how he felt there was a fog rolling in. He could almost see it coming, and he was just lost in it for days. Yeah, I just, I was always on time, disciplined, 
I've probably had 12 operations as a player, all overuse injuries again, doing too much. Not your body telling you that you shouldn't do, you know, you've got a sore Achilles, keep off your legs, but I wouldn't train. But I'd go home of a night and run 6K because I thought that was just in my DNA. I had to do what, I'll, I'll prove everyone wrong. I'm a competitor. You know, you're not, not going to tell me I've got to, you know, and six months later I've had two Achilles operations for overuse. So um, I played for 12 years and played 240 games. And I think the first 10 I played 220. And again, that became a part of my persona. I never missed a game, but I played the toughest position of all. But the last two years I played 12 because my body just caved in. And eventually, you know, 30 years later, my my brain caved in. But yeah, the, the, the darkest days for me was when I come to the realisation how bad I was that I wasn't going to get any better. And the Achilles was always a time frame of six months. This is when you'll be able to do your calf stretches. This is when you'll be able to um, do some light striding. This is when you'll do some full-on striding. This is when you'll get, get into game simulation. This is when you'll play a practice match. It was always on a time frame. My frustrating part about all that, there was no time frame with this baby. And um, he was still barking pretty loud and louder. And then he'd, he'd sort of go to sleep for a couple of days. And I thought, how good's this? And, and you'd then, think you're through it? Yeah. And then he'd just bite you again. And you think, oh, my God, this is happening again. Um, so the the frequency of, of your highs and lows were huge. And the lows become lower. And the highs become high. So, you know, eventually the education was, yeah, the highs are good. And then, yep, but I'm back. I've taken four steps back. Yeah, but you've taken six steps forward. You've only, you're two steps ahead of where you were last week, but you couldn't see that. And it's like a golf bag. You know, there's a whole range of things that I did. And I, my psychiatrist said, treat, treat your depression like your golf bag. You like golf? Yep. I didn't want to play golf when I was crook, but I love it now because it was something that got me back. He said, every club in your golf bag is going to be um, a, an area where you'll get better. You know, the yoga is probably my seven iron. Um, not drinking to excess is my one wood. It's my strength, but my weakness. My strength was I could train flat out, drink flat out, and still get up and act and, and perform in the media like as if no one knew what was going on. So my one woods, I treat that with the utmost respect. Uh, my putter is that's your time. That's when you've got to be in the zone of just, that's the red light where someone rings you up, oh, Spud, can you come and train the under-14 team two hours away? Um, I said, now I've got to be selfish. So sorry, I just I just can't do it. And I feel like saying, look, I'll go and train them, but can you come to my place and clean my four cars and mow my lawns, because it's going to take me four hours to get there. But for charity, no worries. If someone's down down and needs some support, I'll do it. But just, Spud's a good bloke, he'll do it. Spud in the past would say yes, and you look at the diary and think, what the hell? My diary is just filled up because you're a good bloke. So I'm pretty good at saying no now. I do things I want to do. Um, and if something untowards happens to me, I don't sweat it. It's just a part of life now. Are you better accepting that things will go against you and you'll lose yeah. and it doesn't get you to a point where yeah. you feel uh, a failure? Yeah. The best part of the, – the, if I had been a boxer, I probably wouldn't have got 
as bad as I would because a boxer, there's always someone better than you. But as a footballer, you're part of a team and you win, lose, or draw, you've still got your little position. So my position was great. So I always, even though the team got beat at times, and the Saints, we got beat a hell of a lot, I'd still hang my hat on that I beat that, I beat Dunsell today or I beat Paul Salmon or Warwick Kappa. But a boxer eventually gets knocked out. I probably would have been good to be a boxer because I would have led with my chin and just got knocked out. And I thought, and it would have been very humbling. But the unfortunate part about it, that's, that was a part of my DNA. But I don't look back as being a competitor as being a weakness. And I've still got it there. You can't, you can't fight being a competitor. Um, I've got to stop. Che- I don't cheat with Monopoly anymore with my daughters. Did you used to? Because you had to. I'd go to the toilet and I'd grab two two more thousand out of the out of the bank. Because you had to beat them. I had to beat them. That's a problem. And they, <laughs> no, well, it's a huge problem, especially when they knew it was happening. <laughs> They'd come <laughs> back and there's, another, there's a hotel on Mayfair. How did that get there, Dad? I said I don't know. It just fell there, and that was. But they, I think they understand all that now. The cheating because a cheating was a part of being a competitor as well. And that was a hanging onto a jumper as a full forward because he was too good. I thought it's pretty hard for him to run when he's got to drag 100 kilos behind him as well. And that's a part of being a competitor. If you can get away with it, you get away with it. You spoke about uh, you were drinking too much a while ago. Did Schwatter said he drank basically to numb mm. the pain. Yeah. Is that what you are doing? Yeah, I did. I'd My wife and kids would go away. And, I, and when I was sort of... Getting, and I'd sit, I'd watch a movie and have two bottles of red because I thought this was good. My brain sort of just, it's just coming, it's just relaxing a bit. But nah, it was just not on, um, especially with the medication because I thought it actually put me to sleep, but it actually made me worse. It hyped me up too much, um, you know. And I've, I've put on a bit of weight now and I've got to lose a bit, but geez, when I was crook, I was, I was like a bloody stick. How many kilos did you lose? I reckon I lost about. 25. I played at 95 and I got down to 82. But again, this manic... Uh, because initially, the fitness thing made me feel really good. So, okay, I feel good. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to train for 10 hours a day. That makes me feel good. Because it did. It, my endorphins felt good. So I just kept training, training, training. And um, all of a sudden, I'm I'm beating guys out and beach road on a bike who are 20. And I'm thinking... So, you know, how you going, fellas? And I'll just take off and they think, what the hell? What's this old bloke doing? So it was the competitor in me again. So I thought, because it felt good, but it wasn't doing me any good at all. It was just, unfortunately, it just got my adrenal glands opened up again. So the, the word balance is an interesting one now for me. And I, I hear people talking about it. But balance, now that I've sort of been through it, is just being happy and and just be able to float along the day and get your job done, get home at night and just just have a balance. To me, balance was fit as many things as possible into your day. Win them all. Win them all. Do well on the media, work home, then go then then go out for dinner. So you've been talking for six hours on a Saturday, then go and have a dinner party and talk for eight hours as well. And not and not give anyone else a word a word in. So I'm just going to dominate again. So you're living simpler days. I love being on my own now, which is amazing. I, I just hated, but I love people too. So I love, I love a part of my persona is to be quite, I think I can create a good environment, whether it's a team orientated or a, or a function or, or whatever. But I also now like just to switch off 
and and go down to the Brighton bars and just sit on the on the decking there and and read a book. And you'd never do that historically. Never ever ever do it. And if I told you I like colouring in, would you believe me? No. There's these books now you can buy really fine. Just just colour in like okay. game, a game of chess. Like I'd, I'd do a game of chess in a game of chess for me in the past would have been five minutes because if I was getting beat and I knew the guy had me, I'd just fit below, start again. But now I can have a game of chess with a guy that I play with and we do it on the phone. It can go for six months and it's just all about the next move and thinking about it and a bit what the guy set up at the farm that I was there for three weeks. Smell the roses, don't give them windburn. So, so how did you get to that point where you were everything was rushed, trying to do too much, had to win everything to a, a simple, easier life? What was the light bulb moment or the transition? It was someone that said it to you, um, or did you just naturally fall into an easier life? No, I had to... It was a bit like... The way to describe the way I like to describe it, it's a bit like um, you've got your computer. I had to reprogram the hard drive. Right. Yeah. The computer's always here, but I had to retrain myself, which is really difficult when you're in your early 50s. Because when when you think of historically, the only person of, of an elderly age or, you know, over 30 even, the only person that likes change is a baby with a wet nappy. You know, to tell someone to change, that takes a lot of work now because I can slip back a bit. And that's why I see my psych, I see him as just a mentor now. I was a psychiatrist, and I and I said I can openly talking about it because if I had have told someone two years ago that I was seeing a psychiatrist, I would have become really down, embarrassed. I would have thought these people think I've got something wrong with me. When did you get to the point where you were happy to talk about it? It's only recent. Probably now. I mean, I've never heard you talk like this. No, no. And as I said, I I've got a real passion to help people, um, and I've got a real passion for country people, and I know the rule. Flying doctors do a great job with. Um, they've got a they've got a uh, initiative. Look over your fence, because farmers traditionally had a lot of manual labour, and now machinery has taken away um, a lot of jobs for farmers. Mateship, mateship, and now the machine takes over. So the farmer's sitting there all day on his own. He's got no one to talk to, and I say this in a, in a way: when the farmers do a job on themselves, there's no coming back. They do they. It's done. So they've got no one to help them, no one to talk to. So the reason I like talking about it now is if someone can look at me and say, geez, Danny's had some some dark times and he's been able to get through it with support. That's the only way I got through. I wouldn't have got on my own. I wouldn't be in here. As I said, I was I was thinking about just getting out of bed and walking un, under Beach Road under a truck and the only thing that kept me going was how could I leave my daughters and wife with that hanging over their head? I'm thinking... I look back now and I say, how, how did I get that bad? But my, as I said, my brain just shut down and the, and the thoughts, as you said earlier on, all the, all the adjectives of depression, it was just that the dark was getting darker. There was no light at the end of the tunnel for me. And that's what people said. There's a light. I said, no, I can't see it. The stigma is something that we need to remove because the more you say you talked about it, the easier it became. But there is a reluctance to talk about mental health issues. It is, and as I said, I was reluctant till now because I still saw it as a weakness, not an illness. It's an illness. If you had a broken arm, you'd yeah. talk about it. If you yeah, had cancer, it. you'd talk about and it. And that's spot on. I, I wanted to get those things. I wanted to have a massive heart attack because I thought at least, at least that's going to... Um, I can pinpoint the problem. Make, pinpoint the problem and, you know, 
there's, there's a heart attack every 12 minutes. I thought, why can't it be one of those 12 minutes in Australia? Now I look back and I thought, gee, I'm, I'm probably on that way physically. So, yeah, it's just, it, it's an illness and it's something that historically has been there since Adam was a boy. But traditionally, it was seen, and I, hey, I thought people were as weak as piss if they had a mental illness. I thought, you've got to be joking. What are you, you, you weak dog? You know, those type of comments. And say to their face, they're looking back, and bloody hell, that poor bastard was looking for a bit of support, and I just put fuel on the fire, because I now know that people talk about those things and you give it to them that way. It's actually, you can nearly tip them over the edge. You know, and the amount of people, and you'd know, you know, you go up to, uh, you know, country cemeteries and you look around names, you think, wow, you know, geez, what, what, why did that happen? Why? But you had no one to talk to. So hopefully, you know, this one's, th- this one is a little bit about me from a selfish point of view. I'd like to think that I'm good enough because I, I know that you've been after me for a while, but I wasn't in a state to be able to accept it and actually be, feel good about it. I feel good about it now. If you feel like you need to talk to someone, call Lifeline now on 13 11 14. Do you feel like talking about it helps you? Yeah, it does. No, there's no doubting that whatsoever. Because I remember when we spoke, I said, if you ever want to speak about it, just yell out. And you said, yep, 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 no, I can't. Yep, 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 no, I can't. That happened a lot. And I didn't think you'd turn up today. Yeah. No, no. I, I know that you had a couple of texts. And, and there was a couple of it, times where I thought... Do I really want to do this? But I said, no, no, it's not. It's not about. It is about me, but it's about. Um, hopefully, people can look at me and what I've been, and because I still love the media. Don't I don't want the people to get confused that I'm living a lie. I love doing it, but I'm a bit more circumspect now. Um, our show on the bounce is humorous, and it's got a lot of families involved, and that's that's the type of humour that I want. Because, I, you know, what what we got away with ten years ago. Um, you know, you look back and you think, gee, that's that's not great. I but, upset a lot of people. Well, it did, but we only knew I only knew what I knew, only knew at that given time. And and the more it rated well, the the, the better we got at it. And I and there was no one better than me. Hmm. There was no one better. Um and your mates, oh that was great on the weekend, you gave it to him, you give it to him, yeah, gee, that's good. I'd yeah, gee. And again, it just fueled my ego. But now, um, as I said, I don't want to be seen to be a hypocrite, but I've got to be very circumspect with um, the way you handle even players' departures now and coaches. And hopefully there's a few coaches sitting out there reading this as well because I, my time in the association, there was a lot of dark times for coaches because they, it is a physical, brutal, uh, public departure. It can't be healthy coaching. No, forget Forget the departure at the end, but the week-by-week week analysis and criticism and critique of the coaches beyond almost any other profession. It is. And it was quite interesting when I look back at my time. But again, being a competitor, I was like uh, that Monty Python film, The Bloke with No Arms and No Legs. Just a flesh wound. Just a flesh wound, but I could bite your kneecaps off. That was me. But where it hit home with me when the, the young lad had too much to drink and actually, and I had no idea it happened at the time, he had too much to drink and he actually spat on me. When... When, this when, is a spectator at the yeah, game. Yeah, at the game on a Friday night, you know, a million and a half people I get beat by 80 points. So it wasn't a great night for the club or me or the players. But I watched Tony Jones on late news. Oh, the big incident of Richmond. I thought, gee, 
they're going to give it to me again. I've, I've just watched this young fella had too much to drink and, and actually spat. And I thought, geez, it actually looked like it's gone on me. So it was a Friday night game. And then the whole week was just bizarre. It was, it was um, all of a sudden the Frawley name was put into disrepute. And I heard my sister on the radio crying, oh, Danny's a good fella. We play Hawthorne at the Friday night. Friday night game again, seven days later. And a whole busload of family and friends come down from Bungaree. I, I lost it. I thought, and I walked in, and uh, we won the game, but I walked into the footy ops and said, I'm done. I, I know, I don't, I don't care where we get in the finals, I'm done. Emotionally. This, emotionally done. Because, I, as I said, I was in the trenches copping bullets, and I just kept copping them. Just keep firing them, and I'll cop it, and I'll stand up, and I'll be strong. But my wife, my kids, my parents... They were really battling. They were they were struggling because all they copped was oh poor Danny, you know. And then so the resilience I had unfortunately couldn't be translated to my family and friends. Um, so that that was the thing that really sat me back and thought, no, no, this game's got out of hand a bit. Um, I had a critically ill daughter at the time as well, and that was a positive in a way. You never want to go through that. And I know you've gone through that. In a, in a sense, that actually got me through because footy before then was life and death, but it was just a game in essence, and that's why I love the f- footy for what it is now. It's a game, and let, let's not let's not think it's anything else. Yeah, it's big business, but it's still a game, and that's why I enjoy it now. But at that time at Richmond, wow! And you know when when it all finished, looking back, I remember Lindsay Fox said before you start work in two thousand and. Uh, five, go away with your family for three months. He said, go up to Cairns, get your four-wheel drive trucked up and drive back and don't put a time frame on it. So this was early October. So I get up to Cairns and my four-wheel drive come up and for the first time I wasn't on a schedule and I thought, let's get back Christmas Day. And then my first day, we <laughs> I said to Anita, let's drive to um, the Gold Coast. She said, Denny... That's half the trip done. <laughs> you wanted Let, to rush it. Let's just, there's no time frame. So I sat in the beach with Danielle, my middle daughter, and um, and it gets back to what you're saying. You're not in the moment, and I'm, I'm in the moment now. She said, Dad, and I'm reading the paper because I'm involved in, you know, the trade period. You know, Richmond, I'm reading it. She's asked me questions. I'm going, and unbeknownst to me, this happened for five or six years or even longer, even after that. She'd ask me a question and I'd be just reading a book or watching the races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, dad, dad. Uh, yep. And then all of a sudden I looked up and here she is. She's 11 years of age. She's in the nude by this stage on the beach, walking in the water. And I've looked up. I said, Danielle, what are you doing? She said, Dad, for the last five minutes I've been asking you questions to play this little game of um, beach tennis and this other thing. And you said, yep, yep. And so I was waiting. And then I said, then I knew you weren't listening again. So I said, Dad, I'm going to take my clothes off. I'm going to walk into the beach. I'm going to swim over to that island 2K away. And you're going, yep, yep, yep. And I looked up and then I just walked away and again broke down. But I should have actually broke down in front of my girls and, and Anita. But I walked away to break down. I thought, geez, where'd that five years go as a coach? Because again, being a competitor, the more I lost, the harder I worked. And, and you know, I look, I look back on those times of fond memories but you know not living in the moment wasn't really 
um, addressed at that time. If it had been, things could have been differently. But it just then, then it just became the media, then my job at the association, and you've seen the awards night. That was a big thing for me. That was a great night. Um, give you your first to start too. You owe me lunch on that one too. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were down on your last at that stage and give you the call one at the MC this awards night and next minute you got a cushy roll at seven. I'm still waiting for that lunch. <laughs> I'll buy you a sandwich today. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's a brutal, brutal game. We've got to be very careful of even the language we use for, for coaches. It's a great learning for coaches but also those in the media. You have no idea what the individual is going through in their personal life, and you, we, we analyse and critique them on what we see yep. in two hours. Yep, and I think, I think all players and coaches, I think the way I look at it now, you just got to deal one in the facts, and two of what happened on the field. If you start getting what happened over the fence, getting into their personal life, and we've seen players the last couple of years come out, which is fantastic, but there's, there's, those type of players have been critiqued really harshly, even from me, more on field. But then you think, gee, it's actually getting too hard for them and then I put their hand up. So I'm very circumspect now that, that, that any off-field issue, whether it's a, you know, that they're, they're, they're not turning up for training, there's always a cause for that. Have you spoken with Alex Fasolo or Trav Cloak or Tom Boyd or any of those that um, have put their hand up? No, I haven't because, I, as I said, this is the first time would they would they have known that you have um, had depression? No, Not I don't many think do. So. No, I don't think so. Um, Triple M were outstanding, by the way, through the whole process. As were Fox, as were, were Triple M. Um, the CEO here at SEN was was a great person who looked after me at Triple M, and um, I got a great relationship with her for that, Kathy. So she was she was outstanding. Fox Footy were absolutely outstanding, and and sort of put me through a process to get back into it. And it was amazing when you, you talk about losing your confidence. The day I got back, so you, you read that article. One of the leading journalists would say, Danny's going to make a big comment in, I think, July 2014 when I first come back on a Wednesday on Triple M. I had two hours in the coffee shop across the road to go through a five-minute interview of how I was going to get through it. And as you know, you can sit here and you would you would hear me in the media and think, that just happens naturally. He's a bloody talking machine, this bloke. Can't shut him up. Um, two hours, will I or won't I? And, um, and, and it was planned I wasn't going to even talk about me. It was just, yeah, I've just had a, a break. I'm really refreshed and I moved on because at that stage I was still battling. But the best way to get better was to actually get back on the horse and do things that I thought I loved, that I fell out of love with and eventually that got better. And that's why, um, for for basically what is it, two and a half years nearly, that I've I've let it go because it's taken that long to actually get to a, a point in in time where I can talk about it without knowing I can walk out of here and take two steps back. So, you know, that five minute interview on Triple M where everyone was waiting to what I was going to talk about because people were saying, has he got depression or hasn't he? He's had. He's had now what was going to be was going to be one week, then two weeks, and then it was basically fourteen weeks off. Um, I was still battling, but I but through the support to get back and do that was the best thing I did. So to to look at that, um, and that's why you know you you got to keep active, but you just got to be 
you don't you don't go overboard with it. So if you had your time again, in fact, do it another way. If you were helping those listening or reading who are going through it, what's your advice? What 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 were the best learnings for yeah. you as how to attack it and address it? Don't beat yourself up. It is what it is, and you are what you're what you are. But be honest with yourself. And if you're struggling, tell people. Don't be like me and look in the mirror and start crying and then cover walk, it up and not tell Cover anyone. it up and walk out and have a smile on your face. You're just living a lie. So, and people, people can say, I wouldn't do anything differently. I, I, and I used to beat myself up over that. Hindsight's a perfect science. It's not. It, you are what you are and you did what you did. So, and don't, don't have excuses. And no, that that's the way it was. That's all I knew at that particular time. That's all I knew, and that's why we did it, and that's why I did this, and that's why I did that. But now, having been through it and now wiser and older, yeah, I'll do div- things differently now. If I was losing two nights sleep, I'd tell her, look, I'm battling a bit here. You better go and see your doctor again. So that still happens a bit? Uh, not really. Been a bit more restless, but... Um, no, nah, it's pretty good now. Pretty good. Because I was, as I said, the, the the daunting part about it, through those times at Richmond, slept like a baby. Never missed a wink sleep. 10 hours, bang. So you can imagine me going from six hours to five, to four, to three, to two, to one, then running harder, drinking more, working all day, and then three weeks without sleep. I'm thinking, what? Well, you know, the alarm bells were well and truly there. Yeah. So for anyone listening out there, if you've got – sleep's the number one health in your in your persona. It's as simple as that. Um, there's a lot of people have lack of sleep and they need medication for it. That's fine. Um, but there's always something underlying why you're not sleeping. We talked about how reluctant people are to talk about the mental health issues. Would you encourage people just to tell everyone and have no shame – on any front, just talk. Yeah, talk. And I think doctors are getting a hell of a lot better than it, better for it. And a good friend of mine, Dr. Ram White, is a great advocate of... It's interesting. And I'm talking more men here now because women are great. My wife and her girls, they talk openly about any issue. When, and I get embarrassed about it. I've got to walk out some of the issues they talk about. But Anita and her friends, they have coffee three times a week. They talk about me. I'm sure that. They talk about, Soph talks about you, yep. and I'm sure her best friend talks about her partner. Yep. And it's the, the, the soothing's there, yep. and the advice is there around our coffee table. Self-healing. Men are stoic. No, no, we can't have, a, we can't have an issue that we're, um, you know, we, we've got a bit of an issue, men over 40, that we've got a bit of an erectile dysfunction. Mate, it's a, it's a part of life. Yep. Go to, go to Chemist Warehouse and get a Viagra, mate. Go to the doctor and say, oh, you're struggling. And next minute you've got a bar suit, man, couldn't you bend? But, you, you know, so. But that, but that's, that is, it is a seemingly a completely different equation for men and women. It is. Women talk, men are terrible at it. Men are terrible at it. Um, so one thing out of this, I want to get men. And because all men out there spend, they've all, all got a hobby. Mine's racing um, and, and a little bit of golf. And your car. So let's, most people own a car. So men would spend, on average, a 1000 bucks a year on their car to get it retuned, the brakes redone, yet we spend zero on ourselves. How f- is that? Hmm. 
Doesn't make any sense. Does not make one little bit of sense. So if it's yoga that gets you through, go and get a program in that. If it's going to your doctor, and when the doctor says to you, how are you going? Don't say, okay, if you're not okay. Tell him you're battling. And then he'll ask you why, and then he'll, you'll say, look, I've got some finance troubles, I've got partner issues, um, I don't like my job. Then then sit down and then work out a plan, and then he might put you onto someone else. But your doctor is your first port of call, and your partner, and your mate. Sit down with your mates and say, guys, I'm battling mentally here, whether it's an addiction, um, because, you know, the, the punting's an interesting one. You and I like, like a punt. But we also know because of our addictive behaviours, and, and I've got an addictive behaviour, it could get out of hand. Yep. The thing that I always say in the punt now, and you'll text me and someone else, oh, I won X and X amount that day. I'll, I'll always say, okay, that's good. Just text me when you lose, can you? Keep it real. Keep it real. Keep it real and keep it in balance. So for, for men, we're, we're in... We are, our age, I think our younger generation, my nephews are in a good spot. They look after themselves. Yeah, they've, they've probably got a few more pressures socially, but I think, I think the next generation are going to be very open. You know, can you believe we haven't got um, gay people can't get married in our country? Hmm. Uh, it's, just, it's just an absolute joke. I've got two nephews that are, and again, that was, that was huge. Um, for their parents, one was my sister and one was my brother. Yeah. The, they did it so hard. But you imagine how the boys were feeling. But they, they actually, I said, no, come on. And that's just great that they've actually come out and, because, oh, gee, the, you know, these tough country people, they can't, they can't do that, can they? Yeah. I mean, it's... It's, it's abhorrent. It's, we're, we're getting better. We're getting we're better. Not where we need to be. How long did it take for you when you were diagnosed to ring your best mate and say, I've got depression? Um, well, I didn't... Yeah, my best mate was good. He was... He was a bit like me, though. He, he, he found it very confusing. Both come from the bush. We're first cousins, best mates. We tell each other everything. Um, he, he, was, he was great because he'd take me for a walk, but he didn't get it. He didn't get it because he he used to look up to me as you're the man. Bulletproof. You're bulletproof. You've you've just done this. You've done that. You'll get through it. You've got through that. You'll be fine. That was his, and his attitude was very positive, so it was good. But it, he he just couldn't he couldn't relate to it, and because he I, he now knows how bad it was because he saw me a couple of times in the, in the hospital. Um, he was quite shocked. I was too, um, but he was. That actually gave him a, a bit more of a sense of it's just not going to. I'm not going to get over it tomorrow. The beauty out of all of this is positives come out of it, and you've got a plan. You're keen to get men talking. Mm. How are you going to do it? Yeah, we're going to start a show um, here on SEN, or at least a podcast. I've, I've helped Swatter a little bit, and it's a, it's going to be it's going to be more proactive than reactive. That's what I like to do. So it's just going to be a conversation like you're having with me. On a on a Sunday morning on on SEN, um, and basically get some experts in, but just get the conversation started, and probably the the 
the underlying factor will be um, no man should ever walk alone. That's going to be that's going to be the crux of the show. So don't be afraid to say to your mate or look over your fence if he gee he hasn't picked the paper up for two days. What's going on? I know mm. he's in there. Go and knock on his bloody door and drag him out because a lot of friends of me dragged me out of bed to go for a walk. It's the best thing that ever happened. Did I go back to bed after the walk? Yep. But I, I ticked off. I got through a day, which to me at that stage was, was a huge goal just to get through. Just to get through a day um, was was a real bonus. And, and I did nothing. So, yeah, for, for men, get this conversation started. You know, women do an outstanding job, breast cancer, all those initiatives. You know, there's more more males die of a heart attack than any other disease in Australia, and I think it's one every 11 and a half minutes now, a man in Australia has a heart attack. And it's all to do with two things, physically your, your diet and your habits, and mentally the stress. So we, 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 we are carriers of stress far too much, and that has an impact physically and mentally. And that's and that's it in a basic nutshell. And the and the balance. I don't think I answered that properly. Your balance. I even see some players. You know, you've got to do something, and and they'll go and do a degree just to tick the box. If it's just, it's good to get that behind you. But if you're not actually passionate about it, don't do it. But I also understand some. A lot of people have to do what they've got to do, but still get something enjoyment in your life. And that's, you know, as I said, mine mine's my three daughters now. Um, would I have loved a son? I'd be lying if I said no. Would I crave for a grandson? Yeah. That that would be a good thing. You'll have one soon. Yeah, hopefully. Even those boys. Um, anyway. But, yeah, no, it's been good, home. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like getting emotional still, as you can see. But the, the reality is, as you've just preached, don't be afraid to speak. Don't be yeah. afraid to cry. Don't be afraid yeah. to be emotional. And, and don't be afraid to give a guy a hug. Because I said, and, and I do that now. Not... Not um, as a smarty pants, just as a, as a show of, um, you know, I'm I'm here for you. It's funny, isn't it? So you, your old man, you said, was very tough. My old man was tough too, but we have almost taken the initiative. Every time we see him, instead of giving him a handshake, we give him a kiss. Mm. And, you know, yeah, I've got a little great. boy, kiss him every day, about yeah. 38 times. Yeah, that, and so you bloody should. So we are changing. We're getting better, but we've got to hell of, get a hell of a lot better. There's no doubting that. And as I said, um, I'm blessed looking back now of the life I've had and hopefully I've got a lot more to go. Um, I'm excited about the next phase of our life because our girls will be off our hands soon and Anita and I will, you know, um, have a great life. And that's, as I said, I I, I got really, uh, what was the word? Not getting old. Oh, I don't want to get old. But I actually, it doesn't worry me now. Nothing worries me, actually, nothing, other than the health of my four girls and mother. That's the only thing that I worry about now is the health of them. And the rest is just a, a part of life. They love you. I love you. And thank you for talking. Good on your home. Hope you enjoyed Danny Frawley one-on-one and exclusive to SEN. If you feel like you need to talk to someone, call Lifeline now on 13 11 14. Thanks for listening.